Thank you. Take your copy of the Word of God this morning and turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes once again, chapter 3. That'll be our text this morning, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. When I was in high school, we were required to memorize a few poems, and one of them was the poem Invictus. And some of you, I imagine all of you have heard this poem. It's been one of an inspiration for many people throughout the years. It goes like this, out of the night that covers me, Black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstances, I have not winced or cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloodied but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. And then the phrase that most people remember, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged the punishments the scroll, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Uh, this has been an inspirational poem for many people throughout the years. Nelson Mandela famously has said that he, this is the one that helped him get through his in, in, incarceration in South Africa during apartheid. And he used this poem often to encourage himself. And yet when we come to the word of God, I would say the text we're going to look at today is the anti-invictus. It is the reply to, to the philosophy behind such a poem that would say that we are the captain of our soul and the masters of our fate. Solomon is going to say just the opposite of that. He's going to say that God is the master of our soul, of our fate and the captain of our soul. And he's going to say so because of his observation, his experiments, his wisdom that has guided him, the insight that God has given him through the scriptures and, and through his own personal revelation from the Lord. As the Lord led him and guided him through the circumstances of life as he observed and, and moved forward, Solomon came to a very different conclusion than the author of Invictus. He came to the conclusion that, that in fact, mankind has very little control over their soul or their fate, that they're under a different force, and that force is the hand of God himself. When we come to these famous verses of chapter 3, most people look at these verses as if they're a, uh, just an observation of life, the, the seasons of life coming and going, time for this, a time for that. But if you look closer, you'll find that that is exactly the opposite of what Solomon is actually saying. He is not saying that these, this is a picture of the seasons of life. He is making a declaration. He is declaring that God is in charge of everything in life. All seasons, all times are under the hand of God, and he's in charge uh, providentially, sovereignly over all these things. This is the message he brings to us in this chapter. Now, I'll, I'll warn you ahead of time, uh, Ecclesiastes is one of the most uh, cerebral of all passages in Scripture. It's, one, it's a passage of Scripture that challenges the mind. It causes you to think. If you came today without your Bibles, you came today without your brains, uh, either one, which could be both sometimes, but if you did that, you're going to be in trouble because the Word of God here is very intense it's very, it, it takes you deep into thinking, but I think you'll relate with what he has to say as he goes through these things. He's saying that our lives are in the hands of God. And he wraps all the activity of God around three great irrefutable truths that guide our lives. Number one, we do not control our own life. We do not control our own lives. Verses, three, verses 1 to 8. And rather than being the master of our fate and the captain of our soul, uh, we are, 
if we believe that, he says, this is basically his takeaway, if you believe you're the master and captain of yourself, you are thoroughly and completely deluded. Deluded, as was the author of Invictus. Let's take a look. First of all, he starts with the principle in verse 1. He says, there is a point in time for everything, and there's a time for everything, or every event under heaven. Uh, the preacher lays down this principle, principle here, and then in verses 2 to 8, he illustrates it with 14 pairs of opposites. So he is going to give us a, a very fine treatise here. The principle is this, very simply stated, nothing happens just by chance. Nothing just happens. Uh, it, it is God who has appointed everything in its time and every purpose under heaven. God appoints these things. God sovereignly controls these things. It is impossible for us to map out our own lives. Now I want you to think back for a little bit. Uh, think back a year or two or three years ago or two or three decades ago. And, and look at your life now. Could you have, have, could you have orchestrated or even known all the different events that's got, that happened over that period of time? All the things that have happened that you had no idea about. Uh, you could organize your life. You could make goals. You could make plans. But, but by and large, all the different things that happen in your life are things that are unforeseen by you years ago. And the things going forward. You don't know what's going to happen this afternoon. You don't know, what, don't know what's going to happen next year. These things are unforeseeable by you. And therefore, they, they're, they're not under your control, no matter how hard you may try. You may have planned out your life. You may have great potential. Your parents may have given you a great start. You may have a, a lot of money and it's saved up. You may have good insurance. But there's no way for you to know what's going to transpire in your life going forward as you didn't know what was going to happen as you look backwards. And why is that so? Because God appoints all things. God controls all circumstances of life. He sovereignly, providentially controls all things. This doctrine of the sovereignty of God is one of the most hated doctrines imaginable. All unbelievers hate this doctrine. They resist it with every fiber of their being, just as the poet did as well. Even for many Christians, they resist this. They don't want to think that God has this much control over their lives. They don't want to hear that. But for those that understand it, those who embrace it, it is the most precious of all doctrines in the Word of God. For the Lord Himself is in charge, not chance, not me, not, the, not circumstances, not people at work, God. And when we know that, it massively encourages us in our lives. Now he says that, that's his principle. God's in charge, God's in control, God is sovereign. Then he lays out the illustrations. And this is this beautiful section of scripture starting with verse 2. It's such a beautiful section that uh, it's been used by secular people as well. Some of you remember in 1960s, the middle 60s, a, a singing group, a secular rock group came out uh, called The Birds, was the name of the group, came out with a song called Turn, Turn, Turn which was based totally, almost completely on the lyrics of this particular passage of scripture. A secular song in 1965 that, uh, that uses the word of God down the line. Quite amazing. And as the birds wrote that, they, they were thinking of, of, of a very different way God thinks, but they were using these words because of their beauty. So here's what they're saying. Here's what he's going to say. Let's look at some of these pairs. First of all, the rhythm of life includes birth and death. In verse 2, he says, there's a time to give birth and a time to die. 
Now, I mentioned this some years ago, but uh, years ago, I went, maybe 20 years ago now, I went to uh, the hospital to visit some folks at the, church, at the hospital. And, uh, and on the eighth floor or whatever that was, I think at the hospital is the maternity ward and one of our people had given birth to a child. And I went up to, uh, to visit that family, to see that precious little baby, that new life, to pray with them as, uh, as, a, as that baby now prepares for going forth with a, the, the future, the life that's in front of that little child. And it was a joyful time uh, for a few minutes up there with that family, with that little baby. It, I don't remember who it was. It might have been one of you. I might have held you in my arms and prayed over you. I have no idea. But if, if you want to believe that, go for it, all right? But here was that. But at the same time, I went down a few floors, and there was a precious saint, one of our people, breathing her life's breaths. She would die that day, and I would have her funeral a few days later. And I thought that day, how, how ironic. Uh, here, I, the very God who's just given life to a brand-new baby, a baby who's fresh and, and new and everything in front of that baby. And then a saint who has lived many years for Christ but now is dying and going to meet her eternal destiny with the Lord. The Lord is in charge of both. Both the life, both the birth, both the death. He's in charge of these things. He's also in charge of our planting, verse 2. A time to plant, a time to uproot what is planted. God ordains the the planting season and the harvest season. If you don't believe that, go right out there and plant your tomatoes in October in your backyard and see what happens to them. Who, who is in charge of the seasons? God is in charge. There's a time, he says in verse 3, to, to uh, kill and a time to heal. In the scriptures we find many times the Lord took the lives of people or even nations in rebelliousness against him. At the same time, he healed many people. Jesus, one of Jesus' most uh, outstanding ministries was to heal people to point to the fact that he was the Messiah, the, the King of the Jews and the Savior of the world. And his healing pointed to that. And so we have the healing as well. And then there's a time to tear down and a time to build up. Uh, we traveled with the seniors this week down to southern Illinois, and we passed many houses that were just being held together by the termites holding hands together. They're ready to be torn down. They're, they're, why they're still standing is a mystery. And they need to be torn down. They can never be fixed up. Marsha and I, the first three places Marsha and I lived in our married life have now been destroyed and torn down. I got a little nervous after a while. You know, every place we go gets ripped up and thrown away. There's a time to, to be destroyed. There's a time to build up, he says. And God controls those things. There's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. What about the emotions that goes with those types of things, with gains and losses? He's already talked about in the first few verses. There's emotions that, that come with that. There are, there's times, he says, when we ought to be, uh, when we will be in tears. There's times when we'll mourn and there's a time when we'll dance. That's a song that the a verse the Baptists don't use. And, and it's a time, there's a time to laugh, right? So, I just see you laughed at my Baptist joke. Okay. See, there's a time for that. But he's saying there's, a, there's appropriate times for these kinds of things. We, we weep when, when there's sorrow, when there's heartache, when there's loss. And we rejoice when it's fun. And we're having a good time. And we have a, and you hear something that brings us joy. He moves on in, the, in verse 5 to say the same is true of other things. He says there's a time to throw stones, there's a time to gather stones. There's times uh, in the ancient times, uh, execution was t would take place, especially in Israel, by, 
by uh, throwing stones. They stoned people to death. And then when people were, were storming the, uh, the walled cities, uh, enemies coming in, they would throw rocks right down on their heads to kill them. There's a time to throw a stone, he says, and there's a time to take those stones up and build something with them. It depends on the circumstances which God controls himself. And then he says there's a time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. Uh, most of us aren't running around hugging people all the time. Uh, some of you are more huggers than others, but there are times to do both. When someone has a, a lost a loved one and we have a funeral here, there's a lot of hugging going on. We go through the line and we hug and embrace one another. When someone has a new child or just announced they're going to have a child, it's hard not to give them a, a hug and, th and c congratulate them, celebrate with them what the Lord has brought their way. There's a time to embrace and there's a time to refrain from embracing. There's a time to search and a time to give up as loss, he says next. In verse 6, and he goes on to say in that same verse, a time to keep and a time to throw away. There's a time to search. And by the way, there's a time for many of you to search for your lost items here at the church. Uh, please search for them. Our lost and found is over here. Our coat closets are over there. They're full of your precious junk that we'd love for you to take home. So take a time. there's a time to search. And there's a time to give up what it, for what is lost. You can't find it, give up. There's a time to keep and a time to throw away. That's the, that's the model that ought to be over every garage sale. You know, there's a time to give up, a time to throw away. You know, these, these things wear out. I was talking with the staff this week and, and realized I was wearing a sweatshirt I bought 30 years ago. And I thought, you know, still looks pretty good. I think I'll keep it. Someday it's going to give up, right? It almost has to. There's a time for these things. And circumstances are controlled by God. He goes on in verse 7, and he says this. He says, a time to tear apart and a time to sew together. In ancient times, when some tragedy happened, uh, maybe an army had come in and defeated their army, or some great sin had come along, or whatever, it wasn't uncommon for the, the people to grab their, cloak or their clothing and rip it as a sign of, of mourning, a sign of regret, a sign of grief. But, uh, but they also would sew those things back together when things got well, because they didn't have a lot of extra clothing. And so there's a time for each, depending on the circumstances that God brings. And there's a time to be silent and a time to speak. Uh, and during the calamities of life, it's, sometimes it's just best to be quiet. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, didn't we? When we talked about the fact that sometimes when somebody suffers great loss, it's, it's best just to just sit beside them and love them rather than trying to preach to them. And there's a time to speak up, however. We shouldn't always be silent. There's a time. And it depends upon the circumstances that God brings. In verse 8, he says there's a time to love and a time to hate. Uh, there's often times to love. Scripture speaks about love all the way through the Bible. But there's also a time to hate. And if you don't hate some of the things going on in our world today, you're not paying attention or you don't have a heart. There's a lot of awful things happening in the world that should be despised by the followers of the Lord. It sure seems like in our passage that rather than being a master of our fate and captains of our souls, that we are instead victims of the circumstances that surround us. And then he closes in verse 8. He says, a time for war and a time for peace. We, uh, the birds, when they sang their song in 1965, recorded it, ended the song with a, a line that was not in the scriptures. About the, only, about the only line they didn't have right from the scriptures. It was this line. It said, concerning peace, I pray it's not too late. The song itself had been written in the 50s by Pete Seeger. And by the time the birds recorded it in 65, we were just on the verge of going into the Vietnam War. 
And they were pleading that we, not, that we have peace and not war. And we know that didn't work out, did it? We entered the war in 65, didn't, stayed there to 73, and that was one of the most devastating conflicts that America has ever had. I'm not sure we've ever recovered from the divisiveness of the 1960s and 70s during that time. It was an awful time. And so, but those circumstances were out of our control. There's a time for war, there's a time for peace. And so he's told us that God is in control of all things. These verses, every one of these verses is talking about the sovereign providence of God over every circumstance of life. You're not taking charge. You're not in control. God is. Now he moves on to his second great irrefutable truth, and that is that our efforts have limited value. Now he's taking us deep in the woods here. Our efforts have limited value. In verse 9 he says, what profit is there to the worker from that which he toils. I've seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. What profit? What's the use? If God is in control of all things and we have very little power over these things, what's the use? Why do we even try? That's the issue. If God's in charge of, of birth and death and growth and harvest and joy and sorrows and acquiring and losing and speaking up and being silent in war and peace, why should we even try? Solomon is facing this question head on. He's not playing around with this. What profit is there to the worker from the, that which he toils? And that goes back to verse 3 of chapter 1. If you'll flip back one page, he started off with that. What advantage does a man have in all of his work, which he does under the sun? He's at the same place. He's asking the same basic question. He, he says it's... it's it's kind of like if I give this illustration, like being on a cruise ship, and you have no control over where that ship goes. That ship is going to go where it is destined to go. There might be storms that come along, there might be ports it stops at, there might be all sorts of things, but you are not in charge. You're on a ship going somewhere. The best you can do is, is rearrange the chairs on the deck or go to another buffet and eat some more food you don't need. You can do those things, but you're, you're on a ship going somewhere, and you're not in charge. And you cannot change the direction of that ship. And so if that's the case, then, then why even try at all? In verse 10 he says, God has laid something heavy on mankind. This is hard. And if you don't think it is, you're not thinking or, or something, because life is hard. And God has laid on people a very difficult thing. So maybe the theme song of humanity ought to be that old Doris Day song. K Sarah Sarah, whatever will be, will be. I can sing that for you after church if you want, but you probably won't want that. But is that, is that, the best, is that our theme song? Whatever will be, will be. Forget it. Don't worry about it. Perhaps it is. Our, our, with B.F. Skinner, the psychologist who be, be, was the father of behavioralism, which really pretty much controls much of our world today, if you just think it through a little bit, he, he taught that basically we were machines. We're robots. We're controlled by our environment. And the only way to change humanity is to change the environment. But who changes human, the, the environment? Men and women who are also under control of their environment. It doesn't work, does it? But that's what he taught, and that's what many people have believed over the years. We're just robots. As a matter of fact, when I, I turn on certain websites, and they ask, are you a robot? And I, I'm always tempted to say yes. <laughs> I, I kind of want to see what they would do, you know? Would they send the police over? Would, I, my, my, would my computer blow up? I, I don't know. I've never clicked yes that I am a robot. I'm not sure how a robot would do that. 
You, afterwards, you can tell me. So are we puppets on a string? Is God just pulling strings and we're just jumping around and dancing and, and doing whatever God pulls the strings to do? Is that, is that the picture of Scripture? Is what some might think. Well, here's what Solomon concludes at this point. Here's, what he, here's the conclusion he's coming to at this point. Here, there are two, and there are only two options. So you're ready for the two options of life under this scenario. Number one, life is absurd Life doesn't make sense, and it was never meant to make sense. Life has no purpose. It has no meaning. Nothing you do ever matters really in the long run. At that point, you either go into despair, or you go the other way and grab for all the gusto you can get and all the fun you can, you can muster, or you just tough it out. Duck out, hunker, hunker down and tough it out. Do the best you can because it doesn't matter the famous essayist Thomas Carlyle once wrote of a man, he said, this man was born a man, died a grocer. That's his whole life. And that's the life of much of humanity. They, they were born a person, they died, and that's about it. And that's the imprint they've had on life. And that's, if, that's, if life, life is absurd, that's a consequence. There's another option, though, he's going to lead us to, and that is that there is something, let us change that to someone beyond us that gives life meaning. That's the only two options, folks. Either life is absurd or there is someone who gives life meaning. And that leads us to the third of our great truths here, and that is it is God who gives life meaning. It is God who gives life meaning. In verse 11, we begin to pick that up. He says, he has made everything appropriate in his time. Solomon has said, basically, you can build your castles. But with one wave of the, of, the, of the ocean, your castle can be destroyed. And ultimately, you have nothing left to show. These truths could drive us to despair. And God, instead, intends for them to drive us to action. And there's four actions mapped out here for us by God through Solomon, to take in light of what he said about life and God's sovereignty and our action. Number one, to recognize that God, it is God who controls all things. God controls all things. Now, he's already said that, but he wants to reiterate that. He has made everything appropriate in his time. I want you to note the word, very simple word, he. He has made everything appropriate in his time. The word appropriate there could be translated beautiful. Some translate it that way. It, it could be are appropriate. And I think maybe we could put the two together to capture the meaning. Everything, God makes everything appropriate in his time. And it's beautiful when it's all said and done. One of our most favorite verses is what? Romans 8, 28. For God causes all things to work together for good to them who love him and are called according to his purpose. God takes all things in this life and he makes him appropriate and beautiful in his timing. That is what he's saying here. Life is inexplicable otherwise. Should we cry out with the preacher early in this book and say life is meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. It's hollow. It's empty. There's no purpose in life. We're nothing different than animals around us. Should we do that? My answer to that is yes. We should do that. Are you ready? 
Because that's exactly what the world's been telling us for 150 years. If you believe what you've been told for the last 150 years in education and so forth, you, you should come to the conclusion that life is absurd. It makes no sense. For 150 years, the evolutionists have been telling us that there is no creator God. There is no one, no God who created us with purpose, that we are simply accidents of nature. Uh, Richard Dawkins says that, that we're in a Goldilocks area where everything just came together perfectly about 20 trillion times perfectly coming together to form what we have today we have evolved from lower animals and lower life forms we were not created for a purpose we have no purpose we're destined to to live for a while and die well that's a way to live isn't it if that's your view of life and of yourself you're going to have a very difficult time having a logical reason to live you really are you're here for a while you do a couple things you die and that's it is that life is that the purpose Richard Dawkins himself the most famous atheist alive today in his book The God Delusion was asked that very question he and a friend were asking one another that question in his book and as they were talking to one another, they were saying that people come to them and say, what purpose can you have in life if you don't believe in God? Is there a purpose? And, and they, they were talking to one another. His friend says to Dawkins, and Dawkins agrees, well, I don't think we're for anything. We have no purpose. We're just products of evolution. Now, this is what they actually teach. Okay? We're just products of evolution. And you can say, gee, your life must be pretty bleak if you don't think there's a purpose, Right? But, and here's their answer, I'm anticipating having a good lunch. And Dawkins happily confirmed, and they went out and had a good lunch. Wow. Is that my goal for life? To have a good lunch? To enjoy myself while I can? Is that, is that all there is? If there is no God who gives purpose to life, that is all there is. Having a good lunch. And Dawkins says that himself. Going back to our passage then, as we begin to look at this, he says everything is appropriate in his time, and God controls all things. Action number two that we should take. Realize that there is something more than this life. Now you read the next line in verse 11. He also has set eternity in their hearts. Now folks, if you don't get a handle on that line, you'll never get a handle on life. Because God has placed in the heart of every human being, and I don't care how hard you are to God, how much you proclaim to be an atheist, God has placed in the heart of every human being the knowledge of eternity, that there is more to life than this. And this life makes no sense if you don't believe in that life that he has planned for us in eternity. But a lot of people would ever come there. A couple more well-known uh, existentialist atheists have written some very famous books. For example, John Paul Sartre wrote a book called Nausea. I don't, that's a beautiful title, isn't it? Nausea. And in that book, he tells of a man who, who finally comes to grip with the, with the idea that life has no purpose whatsoever. And in the summary, and here's his statement, here's the summary of life from Sartre's book. Every existing thing is born without reason, prolongs itself out of weakness, and dies by chance. 
Hmm, wonderful philosophy of life, isn't it? His character in the book tried everything Solomon tried. He tried education, he tried love, he tried riches, he tried uh, everything he could possibly tried, and he pronounced it meaningless, and that's how the book ends. And no wonder he was nauseated. And then another book written by, by uh, Albert Camus called The Fall, written very similar idea. In his book he has his character watch a lady fall off, I think, a bridge and drowns, and he doesn't help her. And he goes back to his room and he says, I didn't help her because what does it matter if she lives or dies? There's no purpose in life. Death and life are equal. Let her drown. And he did. But he went back to his room and, and God has placed eternity in his heart. There's something within us that, that it, there's a consciousness, according to Romans 2, that says you're wrong. And so he dealt with guilt back in his room, a guilt to a point of suicide. He's dealing with this guilt. But as the book ends... He still has the same philosophy, nothing matters in life. And so it should be. And if you don't have a, a, a link to God right now with Jesus Christ and his saving grace, you ought to be, if you are thinking, you ought to be in despair. Because life makes no, has no purpose, does not make sense. It just is what it is and you're going to die soon. That's not how God wants us to live our lives. I want to cover a little quick tangent, however. Does all this change when we become a Christian? Because we're now saved, do we, have, do we now unravel the mysteries of life, find full satisfaction in all things? No, we do not. A lot of people proclaim the gospel in such a way, you come to Christ, you find peace, you find satisfaction, you find all these things, and that's the gospel, and that's, that's why you get saved. Friends, there is peace in Christ. There's joy in Christ. There's hope in Christ. There's all these things. But it's not, it not, was never intended to be complete. You will not find full satisfaction in this life. You will not find every purpose in this life. You will not find all your answers in this life because it was never meant to be that way. That is waiting for what? Eternity. Eternity is in our heart. It points us to eternity. When all those things will be fully and completely satisfied. Right now we're kind of like a great tapestry. A beautiful tapestry that God is, is creating. But we're on the back side and all we can see is some of the threads. We see pieces. We know God's at work. But we don't have all the answers. So don't, don't think that because you're a Christian suddenly you, you cease to have questions. You cease to have problems. You cease to. You start thinking that if I have a, a bad day, that something's wrong with my spiritual life. Not necessarily. Maybe you're just working through the issues that God has placed in front of you. What should cause us? What should drive us to despair if we don't know the Lord? Changes when we know Him. When we know God, we may not have all the answers immediately, but we know He does. When our boys were little, we'd get in the car to go somewhere. And those of you that have little children or remember how the kids were, all these questions, right? So many questions that ultimately you just give up. You just can't answer all those questions, right? And so I, would, I got in this habit of saying to the boys, I think I still do now that they're in 40s, uh, is, hey, I'm not going to tell you where we're going, just follow me. Now we're already in the car, so they have to follow me, right? We're, we're going to get there, just follow me and we'll get there. And they did, and we did. They didn't know where we were going. I, I couldn't explain to them what turns we were going to make and what street numbers. And I couldn't explain that. But if you stayed with me, you got there. 
And I think there's a good, pretty good illustration of life. I don't have all the answers, neither do you. You never will in this life. But if we stay with him, he has them, and he'll get us there, and he'll get us to eternity. That's very important. That leads us, though, to a third action. Verses 12 and 13, live joyfully and obediently by faith in God. Joyful and obedient. Look at verse 12. I know that there's nothing better than for them to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor, it is a gift of God. Solomon never solved all the mysteries of life. You and I won't either. But he began to understand that God is in charge and control. And as he did, he came to basically two conclusions in all of this. Even though he doesn't unravel all the mysteries, there's two things he could do. Number one, he could do good. He could live in obedience to God. He says that in verse 12. And he says there's nothing better for them to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. We are not without purpose or direction. We do good. We do that which God has, has put out before us to live before. Even it says in Romans chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, it talks about being saved by faith alone, right? Then it says that God has created us for, to do good works. We're his workmanship for that. And so he tells us here that we are not passive floaters along the way. We are his. We are to do good. And the second thing he tells us to do here is to rejoice over the gifts that God has given us. Rejoice, he says. And if we do, he says there's nothing better to do than to rejoice and do good in one lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks and sees good in all his labor, it is a gift of God. And so when you enjoy a good meal, when you enjoy uh, a nice weather, when you enjoy your family, when you enjoy your friends, when you enjoy fellowship and, and the worship of God, when you enjoy the things that God has given you, rejoice over them and thank him for the gifts that he has given you in this life. Enjoy those gifts. They're his. You don't have to understand how it all works. You don't have to be oblivious either. You need to think it through. But you don't have to understand everything to make good use of what God has given you. I have no idea how a cell phone works. But I use it all the time. I have no idea how many things in life work. But God does. And I can trust him with that. But that leads us to a final action that is really the key of the whole book. So hang here with me. And we'll come back to this several times in the future. It's in verses 14 and 15. He says this, I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it. There is nothing to take away from it. For God has so worked that men should fear him. Now here's the takeaway. Six different times in the book of Ecclesiastes, he comes back to this same conclusion. And he ends the book with that conclusion. He says, all these things should lead us to one thing, and that is to fear God. That is our highest calling, to fear our God. What does that mean? It does not mean, I'm, I'm going to flesh this out in the weeks to come, but it does not mean we live in great terror of God, that we live in this cringing fearfulness that God's going to do something bad to us if we don't straighten up. It's not that kind of fear. Truly, God is awesome in that way. But the fear of God in Scripture is a drawing us to Him because He is awesome and He is magnificent in power, in sovereignty, 
in all things. He is beautiful. He's marvelous. The final picture he gives us here is to be drawn to God in that kind of way that all these mysteries of life that we can't unravel, all the issues we can't know about and so forth, those are things that draw us to the, the beauty of God and the glory of God and the fear of God. Let me give you a short line definition you can think through uh, in the weeks to come over the fear of God. Here's, this, here's what he would say. If you fear God, you're going to say, after reading a passage like this, you're going to say, wow, what a God. That's the fear of God. Wow. Look at this. God orchestrates. God controls. God runs a universe I can't even understand. But every detail is in the hands of God. Wow. What a God. What a Savior. What a Lord to live for. I don't have to live in, in despair. I, don't, I may never unravel everything in this life. But I don't live in despair. Because I know that this God is wonderful. He is awesome. He is like nothing else in the universe. Wow. What a God. And that's what he's being drawn to here, folks. In all of his meaningless talk and vanity talk, ultimately he knows the answer. He's still working through it in this book. He gets to it at the very end of the book and says it again. But he knows that ultimately God is doing all of these things for us. Not to drive us to despair, but to drive us to him to see the great purpose of life is to worship and love the awesome God of the universe. So we may not understand everything in life, but as the old song goes, I may not know the future, but I know who holds the future, and I know he holds my hand.